Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, I am joined by my friend Carl Eric Scott for what must be our seventh or eighth conversation. But this time we are not talking about the movies, we are talking about Peter Lawler. This is part of our series in remembrance of the patron of Postmodern Conservative, the man with the Bobo Spiritual Life Center picture that you can <laughs> see on our logo. He was a big, friendly critic of Bobos, the bourgeois bohemians that make up the new American elite. And so we have decided the team at PomoCon, as we were in our last incarnation of National Review Online, to talk about some of our experiences, what we have learned from Peter, from his thought, from his books, from his style of writing and his style of learning, as he liked to call it. So without further ado, let me introduce you to friend and member of the American Cinema Foundation, Carl Eric Scott. Hey, Carl. We, we Hello, haven't talked in a long while. It's been a while. We haven't talked since this crazy 2020 year started unfolding. You wanted me to introduce myself? Yes. What I've learned most from you, aside from Plato and Tocqueville on democracy, is rock music. And that's not something most academics have an academic interest in. It's one of the reasons why I admire you and feel I am not such a loser for listening to music and thinking about it. It meant something to me over the years. And I've taken every chance to recommend to other people your rock songbook. And of course, we'll be talking about that at length. But first of all, tell us about your meeting with Peter and your pursuits as an academic. Right. Well, thank you for doing this. I'm kind of a Generation X academic who has never really landed solidly in any institution. It has to do with kind of the institutional biases and just kind of dysfunctionalities going on right now. So my most recent gig was in Provo, Utah. I live in Provo, Utah, the Mormon headquarters of the world. Peter Lawler once said, if our job is to perpetuate the species, Provo, Utah is where it's at. So that's where I'm at. I was working at the Utah Valley University Center for Constitutional Studies, and um, I live in Provo with my wife. We're not doing our job. We have no children. So I worked at um, University of Virginia, Skidmore College, Washington, and Lee College. So I've taught in a number of different institutions, currently in between jobs, and I'm working on a book project called On the Nature of Democracy. And, you know, my relationship with Peter goes back a ways. I was his main co-writer, as it turned out, with Postmodern Conservative, or one of the main ones. Pete Spiliakos was also very involved. I mean, you got involved towards the end there. So how did you meet Peter and what struck you? You seem to have so many interests in common with him. Uh, Of course, Tocqueville and Plato on democracy and pop culture and following the American scene with a friendly, even if a critical eye to the music, the movies, etc. That I simply thought uh, you guys were a pair. How did this dynamic duo come into being in the first place? (laughs) Well, it was in New York City at Fordham University when I first met Peter. I had gone there to study political philosophy. I had just come from the kind of citadel of great books education, St. John's College. I I had attended the uh, New Mexico campus as part of their wonderful grad program. Fordham was at the time where Mary Nichols was. She's a scholar of Thucydides, Aristotle. She also did some really good work on film. And that's also where I met Paul Seaton, who I know you did a recent podcast with. 
you know, Mary Nichols was very important to me as a mentor, but in a way, Paul was even more important introducing, I'd already heard of Pierre Minot, but he kind of introduced me to that. And then, you know, both Paul and Mary said, well, you know, Peter Lawler's coming to give a talk. This must have been back probably 2000. It just was really impressive. I mean, when I came to Fordham, I was still a Democrat. I was a pro-life Democrat. Um, I read The New Republic probably religiously. And so the kinds of things that writers would talk about there, I was impressed that Peter knew so much about those topics. I was sort of expecting something more in the area of political philosophy. He went into this thing, had to do with the bourgeois bohemians, the bobos, and he had this riff on, um, you know, in retrospect, it doesn't seem like much, but at the time it was fresh, saying, you know, it's really funny, these same people who are all about, you know, slavery and mastery, kind of kinky stuff and sex are also about being, you know, safe sex and consensual. So it's kind of this contradiction. You want danger, but you also want consensual safety. And so that was just kind of the playful and yet profound thing that he brought to the table. So we immediately connected. I think another connection was I was really getting into learning about Tocqueville at the time. I knew that he was a very important scholar and that later I learned extremely important scholar in that. I, th I think really he, his book, The Restless Mind, is on my list to be kind of the number two book on Tocqueville in terms of commentary. He also did some important collections on Tocqueville. Another connection for us was we took religion seriously. My background is kind of evangelical Protestant. Um, I'm currently a member of the Anglican Church, and both Peter and I learned a lot from Pascal. I wrote my master's essay at St. John's on Pascal, and so on my own, I had discovered some connections between Pascal and Tocqueville, and that's really one of the things that he emphasizes the most in his commentary is how much Tocqueville got from reading Pascal. Rousseau also, but Pascal is kind of the most important interlocutor. So there was just a lot of things that immediately connected us. I suppose we didn't really start working with one another until postmodern conservative, but that's my initial encounter with him. So then let's talk about the Tocqueville-Pascal connection and the restless mind. You're right, Peter was, still is, I think, the prominent proponent for this view that was also very neatly summarized by Solzhenitsyn in his Harvard address that he hears beneath the happy talk of America and the consumerism, the existentialist howl of despair. And of course, that if we were born to be as happy as our capitalism is trying to make us, we would not be born also to die that cannot but cramp our style. So we somehow have to account for this, why Americans are so restless, the big Tocquevillian theme. How can we be so restless in the midst of such unprecedented prosperity? How did this become a concern for you? And indeed an enduring concern until now you're working on this book on the nature of democracy. Yeah, for me, part of it was noticing certain similarities in Plato's fairly brief but very rich critique in The Republic of Democracy. It's book eight, um, where you get a picture of Democrats as subjected to, to use a Tocquevillian term, inconstancy, constantly trying to change their life, trying out new things, kind of almost cyclically, randomly. And some other just similarities, I kept seeing them um, as I was reading Tocqueville. So the key text for really diving into that idea of an inconstant democratic character is a chapter in Democracy in America called The Restlessness of the Americans. 
why Americans are so restless. And you mentioned the fact of, you know, death is a factor in there. But the big thing that seems to prompt it in that chapter is their pursuit of material well-being. So you get this account of Americans, you know, constantly moving west. They can't really settle any place. They go from one job to the next. And this does track with some of the biographies you read, read of Americans at the time. John Brown, for instance, is an example of an American who goes from career to career and seems to not be happy with any of them. And so the natural question to ask, well, is why? Why are Americans so restless? And I think a superficial reading of that chapter says, well, the explanation is they're just greedy lovers of material well-being, keeping up with the Joneses. And that's part of it. But what Peter pushes towards and what, what I was starting to see also is that it lines up pretty well with what Pascal says about the need, you might say in a universal sense, of all humans for diversion. Pascal says, we know that the human condition is one of misery, that we're going to die is the big one, right? And we're not really happy with our situation. And in fact, the people that know most of all that they're unhappy are those who ought to be in a position of being happy. So Pascal talks about the need that a king might have for diversion, that things like war or playing a game or this, that, or the other, this is all a sign that the king or people like him, the last thing they would ever want is to be in a room alone by themselves. You know, so kind of like COVID times, but without the internet, right? That would be enough to drive you over the brink, says Pascal. And that's the primary motivation, Pascal says, for just about everything humans do. If you look at Pascal's account, it looks like this is something that's happening to the aristocrats more. That's why the example of the king is important. Tocqueville, what he does, he sort of shows it can happen to an entire people in prosperous democratic times. You've got your social mobility, you've got your political freedom, you've got a good, decent level of education and economic opportunity. And it turns out that the Americans... They might act happy, but you can kind of detect this unhappiness in their spirit. So that's the connecting point, you might say, of Plato, Tocqueville, and Pascal. And Peter's book, The Restless Mind, also connects it to historicist thinkers like Rousseau. Yeah, what's strange about this desire to divert ourselves is that we tie it with achievement. To give you an example that startled me, Years back, when I was touring America, I went with a friend to the Grand Canyon. In America, pilgrimage is not to religious sites, it's to natural wonders. It's the great natural parks out west primarily. And I think that says a lot about uh, American characters. Americans realize that the savagery of the land somehow corresponds to the savagery of the American heart. But there's something true in the fact that the world isn't interested in you. There's somehow something grand and indifferent. And that's, uh, of course, a great condition of American ruggedness. And when I went to the canyon and we hiked the Bright Angel, my friend told me that one of her hiking friends set a record for going the 10 or 12 miles or whatever it was in six hours or so. And it immediately occurred to me that's a very American thing to do. The whole point of going to the Grand Canyon, of course, is to look around, to Mm -hmm. go through it, but to look around. But you're never going to see anything if you're speeding through it. But if you're not speeding through it, I mean, that is catching up with you. And so this guy was way more interested in setting a record than beating his record than being at all aware of where he was. Achievement somehow manages to detach us from ourselves and from our circumstances because it gives us this sense of having gotten something done, maybe something worthwhile, maybe not. But setting purposes and chasing after them is how we understand keeping alive even. 
that's a very crazy way of thinking about life, of course, since the things that we most care about are the ones that change least. Um, right. So the example in Tocqueville is a fellow who makes a big deal about working on his retirement home. He brags about it and builds it and plans it. And he finally gets it done and he sells it and goes somewhere else, you know. So, yeah, I think that that constant setting of goals, you can't just call it greed or materialism or competition. There's something else going on. Again, Pascal works well to explain it. There's a need to divert oneself from one's own kind of confusion and misery if you try to think about, you know, where you stand in the ultimate scheme of things. <laughs> is there a God? Where do you stand with God if there is one? All of those things are topics that the modern man likes to avoid. And Pascal suggests this is not really such a new thing, that it's kind of a perennial thing, but the modern circumstance aggravates it in two ways. One, it gives more people more happiness. So bad news from this podcast is the more people that are more happy or have opportunities for happiness, let's say, the more vivid the kind of restlessness, the heart of our souls is made to more of us right? James Polis has a really good kind of Wallerian meditation on this side of Tocqueville in a book called The Art of Being Free, kind of talking about the craziness of America. Waller also attached it to theory, to things like Rousseau. You know, Pascal's answer to restlessness is basically, well, be a Christian, right? You're still going to be restless. You're still going to try to divert yourself, but this is, you know, ultimately the way. Rousseau, according to Lawler, he takes Pascal's insight about our restlessness and he kind of ascribes the problem to, you know, kind of a monstrous origin of the human species, right? That this obtainment of consciousness and of life as a social being, interacting with others, thinking about the truth, all this actually makes us more miserable. This is going to be a crude version of Rousseau, but there's sort of many points in Rousseau where he, you know, points the reader back to desiring kind of a simple life. And the most radical version of that would be a return to kind of an animal life, right? That you could live as unselfconsciously as the animal. So Peter saw all of that as off on the wrong track. But I mean, I guess if you're convinced that atheism is correct, you can't go with Pascal. So you seek out the explanation for human misery in these other ways. And Peter did a lot of interesting things in different ways with this doctrine of inherent human Pascalian misery. It reflects what he thought about in terms of Walker Percy. It helps explain why Peter could be not as doomy as a lot of conservatives when he, for example, considered ideas of, of transhumanism or you know, soft despotism. He would tell other conservative intellectuals, don't worry so much about this because we can't get all the way there. I'm this is maybe the most important insight that I can share with you today that to people that are worried about the possibility of some elite giving us drugs in the future or some, I don't know, internet setup where we can completely divert ourselves from our misery and, and enter a full-on soft despotism of the sort described towards the end of Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Peter kept saying, you're going to have someone administering the system. You're going to have someone administering the drugs. And those people are going to know the score. And they're still going to be miserable, like Pascal's aristocrats, like Tocqueville's Democrats. And so there's no way you ever get to this final place where everything settles down. So the good news, you might say, about since it's 2020, I'll talk about our socialist theorists, you know, people who are longing for revolution. 
they're leading us into a lot of craziness, but in a way, part of the Lawlerian good news about them is their craziness shows that their theory isn't correct. You cannot bring humans on this earth to a rationally determined, scientifically determined state of satisfaction. That's part of his things are always getting better, always getting worse thing. But I, you know, I think his theory was open to things could get a lot worse for a while. But ultimately, that human restlessness is a plus. Peter used to say something like, things are getting really bad, thank God, right? Because when things are really good, that can be in a strange way more disturbing for us. I was recently reading his piece on Tocqueville begins with Tocqueville's meditations on the 1848 revolution. And Peter's first chapter in, in the Restless Mind book is called Socialism. And he shows how Tocqueville was very much opposed to the socialist doctrine. But in a way, their attempt to overthrow everything in 1848 France kind of gave Tocqueville a spiritual shot in the arm. He was not so happy with the bourgeois at peace regime that existed prior to this socialist push for revolution. So maybe that's another bit of good news for us in 2020. Our fellow citizens' insanity is a sign that they are still fundamentally human in that Pascalian, Tocquevillian understanding. Yeah, I think that's right. In his scholarship, Peter always liked to find what great authors had to say in a personal or confessive or unguarded sort of way so that you wouldn't leave it merely a doctrinary statement. And so when he looks to Tocqueville, he does pay a lot of attention to his memories, the souvenir which yeah. chronicle his political activity, France in the mid-century, and indeed he alludes to in the 1848 prophecy Road to Democracy in America, where he says that the author of these pages has a right to say that he saw all of this coming, that there is something deeply disturbed in a bourgeoisie that thinks democracy, which has wiped out the church and the kings and the aristocrats, is now going to stop in face of the bourgeoisie. We have to, he says, face up to democracy, figure out how to educate it without trying to humiliate it or hold it in contempt. And he saw socialism as the reaction of the most vulgar part of democracy faced with the most vulgar part of aristocracy. This leads Tocqueville to explain the strange paradox of 19th century Europe, which has spread to America. He says that the most vulgar people in the world have liberty in their mouths every day. And the noblest people, because of revolution and fears of socialism, are committing to the most ignoble causes imaginable instead of them championing liberty. America perhaps hasn't fully escaped the problems that are inherent in democracy. And that's indeed, in some strange way, good news. As you say, people will delude themselves with all sorts of crazy things, which in America we call the 90s. And it's only when things go really bad that the lies stop being persuasive and people remind themselves how much hardship human nature is heir to, but not before crisis. You know, what is true of American happiness is true of the drugs Americans like. It's coffee for everybody and alcohol maybe for everybody. People who want to be stoked out on activity and people who want to not feel anything anymore, to not have to bother anymore, to not have to try so hard. And the happy people, as much as the crazy people, feel the need to bottom out. That's where Americans tend to find their peace with the world. Self-created freedom of your self-authorship, your radical individualism. This is how far these illusions can take you and no further. And that is immensely relieving to Americans to find that there is a limit, that you have bottomed out, that there is a necessity to the world, and you don't have to keep fighting. 
It's very hard to tell Americans not to be crazy. It turns out not to be hard to tell them crazy won't cut it. That's why Americans love so many crazy musicians. You know, Christianity in American music is often Johnny Cash, or the patron of country music is Hank Williams, who lived a short and pretty miserable life. Very soulful, and it turns out you can't be soulful without much misery. It's why the American music is blues music of miserable people, and it could not have been generalized if it didn't turn out that all Americans have a lot in common spiritually with Black people who nevertheless had a unique history. This crisis will make people somewhat more serious. It's a hard thing to say to people since everybody wants an easy way out, but it is easily verifiable. This is why Trouville and Pascal have such currency. This is why Augustine, back of them, has such relevance to American concerns and is so plausible whenever people get to hear these things. They cannot but nod along and say, yeah, them's the bricks. And over and against that, Peter saw Rousseau, and Rousseau typified for Peter modern theory. The first man to promise that indeed we might be able to put an end to the whole drama, to the whole misery. You have a political solution to this, but there's also a more radical solution you might want to contemplate. Because no animal is unhappy. As soon as you abandon faith in God, you can go back to being an animal or try it. There's nothing going to hold you back anymore. You just have to embrace the hopelessness. All the fantasies of our age have this abstract quality that Tocqueville calls materialistic pantheism. It's a vague kind of universality that can never give a good causal account of anything, much less its relationship to human being. But people will tell you the one trick that they believe can solve the human problem, the one force, cosmic or economic or psychological or social or whatever, that they believe rules everything, and therefore a man could abandon himself to it with more, you know, happy talk or more desperation, depending on which side of the American drama he is at that time. This tendency to give up to abstractions, fear that maybe machines will simply take over from us. And you know what? Maybe we deserve it. Maybe the machines are better at being people than we are, because we're obviously so screwed up, a phrase Peter never tired of using. And so there is this threat that comes from theory And Peter pointed out that so long as people are involved, as you were saying, any kind of crazy system will still need administrators. There will still be people involved. And since they have not overcome human nature, it is not going to be possible for everything to turn into an abstract theory. And this is indeed a very big problem in modern political theory. If you know where to look, any philosopher you ask will tell you that secretly he's banking on a conspiracy of a few people running experiments on mankind. Mankind has to be separated, as we see now, into Silicon Valley oligarchs and everybody else. And if the Silicon Valley oligarchs want to run experiments on your children, what are you going to do about it? Nobody says no. That's kind of a caricature of this deeper problem. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot on the table, but let me just say a couple of things. Peter was, in general, you might say, open to your recognizing your craziness, in in some ways embracing your crazy feelings. But of course, one of his collections of essays was called Allergic to Crazy. And he actually begins that collection with kind of a pay-on to country music, right? Saying there's a blues-grounded storytelling, I don't know, groundedness to country music, something to be held up. So he wasn't all about these moments, you know, where you're in a Walker Percy novel and you're side by side with the scientist who's going nuts and isn't that soulful. I mean, Peter could appreciate that kind of thing, but he also had one foot grounded in more traditional American ways of handling craziness. I guess I'd say country western music, the blues, and even you might say evangelical religion that's touched with aspects of Pentecostalism, which of course Tocqueville 
Tocqueville sort of was puzzled by, like, what is this? And Tocqueville's theory for it was, you know, these people live lives that are so constrained by disciplined competition in the marketplace that when they suddenly allow themselves to go into the spiritual life, they just break through all barriers and go crazy. In my view, this story is more complex than that. But all I'm saying is that Lawler was aware of these undercurrents and problems in American life and gave them their due. So we can go back and talk more about Tocqueville and his application to today. Well, let's hang on a bit more with the restless mind uh, okay. and our Tocquevillian reflection. It's, of course, always necessary to somehow explain why we should be reading the French aristocrat Tocqueville. It's not the case that thoughtful Americans have always turned to Tocqueville. The book's been around for almost 200 years, but, you know, not particularly studied. Maybe recently, say a generation or two back, America became interested in Tocqueville in a serious way. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's a strange thing that suggests self-consciousness that Americans have achieved. Yeah, I think America. it had something to do with the fact that not only in America, but across much of the Western world, Tocqueville just proved to be more right about class dynamics and a lot of things connected to that than Marx was. And this became evident at the latest by kind of the early 60s. People realized we are becoming a middle class society. The middle class kind of sets the tone and dominates thing. And at first really became apparent by the 50s, by the 60s. In some ways, the muse of rock music shows you that. Other things in popular culture, I think about the youth subculture in England called the mods, who were on one hand working class, but on the other hand were dressing better than anyone else, like aristocrats. So that's the kind of thing that makes perfect sense if you know your Tocqueville doesn't really work so much with Marx and all the kind of sociological people who maybe give you a lighter version of Marx. So that's part of the reason why Tocqueville becomes more important. And I guess also reflects an American diminishment of confidence. I think once you get past the cultural revolution of the 60s, there's a lot of self-questioning going on in America. And Tocqueville's perspective works with that better than a triumphalistic, you know, liberal version of American history. I mean, we were talking about Tocqueville's souvenirs, his recollections about the French Revolution. And America is not like France. This is one of the things Tocqueville liked about America. We were not constantly going through these paroxysms of revolution. Tocqueville had a number of explanations for that. You know, the most important one probably is that, look, the Americans actually did community self-government and democracy at all sorts of levels before they started getting into the theoretical you know, readings of Locke and Rousseau on it. Whereas with the French, all they had was the theoretical writing. So the Americans could kind of do it. And he was very impressed with the way America got a kind of consolidated democracy going. But we're in a situation at the moment, it looks like, where we seem a little bit like those Frenchmen of the you know, 1840s. It's a little different. I mean, the French situation was one in which one of Tocqueville's teachers, Francois Guizot, had set the government up so that it was really quite oligarchic. To participate or to cast a vote, you had to be of a very high income bracket. And that made for a very bourgeois society. And you can see this very vividly in the Flaubert novel, A Sentimental Education. And it reminds me a little bit of the 1990s and the early aughts, you know, where the key was, which rich people are you making your pitch to, right? That was the way to get anything done in society. And I think that was the French society of the 1840s. And Tocqueville hated it. 
Tocqueville's, you know, like, I just wrote this grand book on democracy in America. I'm about big politics. And all of our politics is just about these little backroom deals and tinkering at the margins. And we're ignoring the fact that we're not doing enough justice to these Republican socialist types who rightly want to be part of our system. We're not letting them. So that's part of the reason why Tocqueville, even though he didn't like the Socialist Revolution, the Revolution of 1848 invigorated him and gave him a purpose again and and made politics kind of great again. And maybe we're in something comparable, right? That the aughts, the 90s, really ever since we lost our automatic enemy, the Soviet Union, we've kind of been drifting. I mean, it's become a very bourgeois, elite-dominated, money-dominated, luxury and entertainment-dominated society. And so maybe with things like Black Lives Matter and Antifa getting, in a sense, the upper hand, we're in a moment where some of us who have been maybe a little confused can rise more to the challenge. So that's one way of applying Tocqueville and what he describes in the souvenirs to the present situation. It's the kind of thing that Peter really focused on. That even Tocqueville, this great man, had this kind of unease in him that was really only, you might say, medicated or mitigated by big political events. Yes, I do think that you can see in America, if you know where to look, that there is an entire generation of restless people yearning to act politically and who, even at their most impotent, are very sarcastic or outraged against the consensus that dominated America until recently, because they realize it was the shackles that prevented them from sometimes even thinking about politics or doing something as Americans for the common good. But it is a sign of being more serious about politics, just like, as we said, interest in Tocqueville is a sign of doubts that the great American victory, really, in World War II and the setup of a new America with big institutions for everybody, big corporations, there's going to be big labor, there's going to be big government bureaucracies, everything's going to get done by sort of military, sort of techno-experts. And that gradually collapsed from the 70s onwards. And it was only when some of the urgency of dealing with that collapse, like trying to save the economy or beat the Soviets in the 80s, only when that urgency wore off that people started thinking seriously about why the hell did this happen? How could our victories, putting us on top of world history, lead us to try to commit suicide in the 70s? But as you said, these two things are related, the loss of confidence and the reinvigoration of political interest. Maybe we can get it done this time or you know, arrange things in a more reasonable and less deluded way. Indeed, in the case of Tocqueville himself, Peter thinks about this in Postmodernism Rightly Understood. Why was Tocqueville so gloomy? Why did he think Sophisticates might take over? And he says, well, Tocqueville said he's got a spirit of liberty in him, this desire for freedom. He says that it doesn't matter to him whose boot is stamping on his neck or in the name of what ideal of justice. He's just against it. He wants to be free. And yet he cannot quite explain why or how reasonable it is to be hopeful about this freedom. He is indeed doubtful and maybe even fearful. Certainly, as you can see on the conservative side of Tocqueville studies, primarily it's people saying, oh yeah, this is America, it's soft despotism, maybe it's over. People are very tempted by this gloom, by this despair, by this desire to believe that it's not even worth doing anything, that their personal sense of impotence is a national or indeed a global historical verdict on mankind. Yeah. Because people can't say to themselves, well, maybe I screwed up. And in the case of Tocqueville, you do see that he had a very strange for a philosopher commitment to political liberty. 
Yeah, I mean, Tocqueville at the end of the day is really, really against surrender to innovation. This kind of, uh, there's nothing I can do. America's over, or I don't know, liberal democracy across the West and the world is over. He hates that kind of attitude and he thinks it's a spiritual disease of kind. And Lawler, in a way, he's not so much critical of it, but he makes fun of it. He draws on Percy as well, Walker Percy, to do this, you know, this assumption that things can get so bad. And I think a lot of Americans right now are kind of stunned. And I don't know, they should just use this moment to maybe return to some more fundamental thought. With Lawler and Tocqueville, it was a real liberation for me in in a different way. In the the 90s and the early aughts, I was kind of, you know, I said I went to St. John's College, the great book school, and that was after reading Mortimer Adler. And I really sort of thought, you know, I'm going to go to St. John's and like Mortimer Adler, I'll, I'll emerge this 21st century Thomistic type who's got all the philosophical answers and can correlate philosophy with my biblical belief. You know, that this is just the responsible adult thing to do, and it'll be great. But, you know, <laughs> what I found was that real liberal education, really grappling with the great books, with Plato, and maybe Pascal most of all, I mean, it really kind of you don't have answers, right? Pascal's right that philosophy kind of makes you or tempts you to become arrogant and deny your connection to the brute, to the animal. You can kind of theorize happiness. You know, you can read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics or Aquinas's glosses on it and think that you've got the science of happiness coming your way, but it turns out not really to work for you. And it doesn't really even so much fit with the Bible either when you really take religion seriously or are in interaction with religious people who are often screwed up in all kinds of unique ways, but also perhaps inspired ways. So for me, the Restless Mind book was really important for working through that. Peter showed me that Tocqueville, and we know that Tocqueville, you know, he was raised Catholic, but at a certain point, he just really went through extreme doubts and scholars still kind of debate, well, where did he wind up? Was he a deathbed Catholic? Was he a partial Christian? I think probably the safest answer is the last couple of decades, he was something of a highly heterodox Christian or theist, you might say. Um, He had trouble with the incarnation and other kind of central doctrine. But what emerges from Peter's book is that Tocqueville used his desire for defending political liberty and for defending the possibility of political greatness as a way of diverting himself from fundamental thought, the kind of fundamental thought that Socrates, Pascal, and Jesus would force you into. That was important for me to see that that was at least a possible temporary solution. There was reason to be merciful and understanding about that kind of position. Peter was not saying, no, Carl, you've got to be the hardcore Christian philosopher and figure it all out. And you've got to look down upon this political stuff and this how do I compute America stuff. Peter actually felt that the Tocquevillian path had something to it. You needed to keep your eye on fundamental thought, and certainly Peter was a faithful Christian to the end, so, you know, that as well. But he respected Tocqueville's type of struggle, and I think there's a lot of riches in the Restless Mind book to Peter's description of Tocqueville's wrestling with Pascal on one hand, and yet his political interests and concerns on the other. Yeah, Carl, I think that this is why Peter was so interested in all the things that ended up in postmodern conservative by way of observations of American society. What new crazy things are Americans up to? What things are they rediscovering or they should be rediscovering given their concerns? What goes on that reveals the American heart? 
where can we see signs that Americans are grasping their way to being sensible, or at least less deluded, first of all, about being crazy? Peter thought that American pop culture is actually not particularly sophisticated, and it's not as corrupt as people would say, especially on the conservative side. There's a lot of people who are honestly and sometimes in agonized ways wrestling with the fact that they don't know what to do with themselves, that it's not clear which answers work, because you can't look around to somebody and say, these people have it figured out, do likewise. There are not that many people who have it figured out, or they're not obvious in the public life. And it's not always easy to imitate people one admires. And so what Americans will do instead is try things out. Peter was not contemptuous, therefore, of what it is that people do, because they're people. There is something important in their struggle to find out what it means to be human and how to deal with it. That, I think, is what attracted me most to postmodern conservatism. I came up in a generation where people had far fewer delusions about a great future. They say kids who grew up after the end of history grew up with the end of the end of history when it became obvious that far from things getting better, they were getting worse. Far from getting more predictable, they were beginning to collapse in unpredictable ways. As I've mentioned before, just like Peter's writing style and his sense of humor helped me become more moderate, also his attention to the scene, to what goes on, helped me realize it is not all that gloom. The first thing really involved in postmodern conservatism is, as you said about his pop culture collection, it's allergic to crazy. You have to understand that first is maintain your sanity, and if you can, encourage other people to be sane as well. And that is often done by a pointed remark, by noticing something impressive, and by humor. Not so much by exhortation, since there's not a lot of us who have a great moral authority. But often enough people will listen if you point out to them something funny and strange about what it is that they're doing. Postmodern conservative was all about that. So maybe we should move from Tocqueville to our Tocquevillian American studies. Sure. Yeah. So postmodern conservative grew out of really the comment section of a blog called, I never liked this name, but here it is, No Left Turns. Um, this was sponsored by Peter Schramm. You know, people involved in Ashland were contributors. The comment section kind of took off because it was people like Peter, people like me, people like Paul Seedon. I can't remember who else kind of chiming in. And so at some point, Peter talked to the people at First Things and got this idea for postmodern conservative going. It grew out of experiments with his own way of writing. You know, if you look at the earlier Peter Lawler, books like Aliens in America, a book like The Restless Mind. It's fairly academic, but it's sort of in a fire hose type way, or it's maybe Peter takes you through paces that are kind of intense. In, in these essays, you're chugging along with, I don't know, Marx and Rousseau, and suddenly the key to understanding them is some kind of odd interpretation of Shakespeare, and you got to run with that. And so reading a Peter essay from the early years could be exhausting, definitely worth the journey. And he got better. He made things tighter as he went on. And one of the ways he did that was just combining, I guess, his natural classroom wit with a way of writing that was utilizing common phrases to make profound points. Things like, let's keep lock in the lockbox. You know, this is above my pay grade. He would take everyday phrases and really give you some pretty profound things. I mean, I was looking at an essay today it's called something like we're persons and i think the subtitle is even better it's like why there are no dolphin scientists on the surface it's just a little essay i think he wrote it for new atlantis 
he was writing similar things for the blog he contributed to called Big Think, which was more techno-oriented. And so he just found a way of having this kind of second voice that was more witty, more popular-oriented. And he started trying that out on Postmodern Conservative. Now, initially, I can't remember James Polis's involvement. He had a blog called Postmodern Conservative on his own, and he had learned a lot from Peter. And I think the title was taken from a Peter book of essays called Postmodernism Rightly Understood. Ralph Hancock was involved. I think it was designed to be kind of, we're going to be a little bit more political here than we are in our academic writings, draw out some philosophical ideas more. And when I got involved with it, I said, well, I want to do this thing with rock music, called it Carl's Rock Songbook expressing connections I had seen between certain rock song lyrics and certain political theory ideas. So, you know, one of the first ones that came to my mind was, you know, thinking about the European Union and the idea of a world state or transnationalist governance. Obviously, I thought back to the John Lennon song, Imagine. Maybe you could, you know, write something that would throw in some of the best of the political theory on this in a brief way and some lyrical analysis I'd always been very interested in rock music, had all kinds of theories bubbling in my head about it. So that's the basic story of postmodern conservatives' formation. Yeah, so postmodern conservative was both more theoretical than academia really is, more interested in thinking through implications of philosophical insights or arguments without needing to do so in a formal way without uh, looking for peer approval or respectability. And at the same time... Not worrying about the footnotes. Yeah, exactly. You didn't have to cite your authorities. And you could trust that uh, everybody else involved would be to some extent interested and try to figure out, does this make sense? At the same time, it was so theoretical, it was also a way to talk about all these practical concerns about what's going on in America. So it was in some sense both below and above academia, and in that way, perhaps it's just truer both to conversation and what it means to be a thinking human being, since most of the things you'll be thinking about are that way. One real quick point, you were sort of alluding to the fact that Peter had a way of kind of just observing things about what was going on around him his conversations with his buddies at Panera, or things that he would observe in various places. Certainly, as you said in the podcast with Paul Seaton, he used movies that way. What does this movie show me about this part of America? So he was very good. I I was never quite so good at this. Let's just observe some of the things that are going on in America. Let's consider for a moment how they either fit or usually do not fit with the things that the theorists are saying. So postmodern conservative, for Peter at least, became a platform for sharing those kinds of observations. Yeah, and I think we can call this dissident conservatism, hence the, even the very strange name postmodern conservative, itself a very Tocquevillian statement that the era of modern confidence, which in America really was the post-war era, is over the notion that technical solutions are going to suffice, or on the other hand, the notion that national togetherness is strong enough. Any reassurance that was fashionable or widely believed for a long time had come under severe attack, and not because of polemics, but because people found it harder and harder to believe in it or to form specific projects based on those beliefs and act on them. So modernity became questionable. But at the same time, Peter was not interested in throwing modernity out only in qualifying it or keeping it under control. So from his point of view, postmodernity had to be a recovery of pre-modern things, again, with the Tovillian notion that if you know where to look, there's a lot of aristocracy in America. If you look at the religion, if you look at the family, 
but you can't look at it from the outside or try to impose it on Americans. You have to be willing to learn from American practices and figure out what principles are there that people leave unacknowledged. Indeed, in America, decent men who are rugged individualists find it much easier to deny that there are any moral principles, not to say a natural law, than to accept that that's what's guiding them. That's why they behave in a decent and generous way. They will deny this. Peter was indeed very good at this, figuring out why it is that people do these strange things and why the obvious is so systematically ignored in America. Yeah. You know, the other thing just to say is that it was a group blog, and so it had all the strengths and weaknesses of a blog, strengths being commenting on the events of the day. So there was a lot of posts, particularly by myself and Pete Spiliakos, that were just simply political. But there's a lot. I mean, Peter was very consistent. You know, he wrote the lion's share of the post. So it was kind of a group blog with a leader. And so we were first at First Things, and then we moved over to National Review Online. And, you know, the archives haven't been perfectly kept up, but they're pretty much there. So you can explore some of Peter's thought at the time, um, not just through his essays collections, but through the postmodern conservative posts. Yeah, I constantly look up some of these old things because even stuff from No Left Turns is still available. It is not indexed adequately, but you can find these things. And of course, since Peter was so interested in pop culture, it's always easy to just Google Peter Lawler on some pop culture subject of interest and see what comes up. Look around. Yeah, he really got into the long series TV trend. Yes, he did. So indeed, there are certain strengths to this approach to what I call distant conservatism. It's friendly criticism. It's an acknowledgement that much of what Americans believe is good and that what Americans instinctively believe about themselves as they're normal people is really the bedrock of American strength. It's just that this maturity is precisely because it is in a certain way short of itself, very bad at articulating it. There's nobody speaking up for the majority. The majority is indeed systematically divided by anything from fashions to ideologies to two different parties splitting up the majority. It's a tricky thing to deal with, mm-hmm. to somehow see that there's kind of seriousness in people, even in realizing that there's screwed up stuff that you can't really deal with well. But at the same time, to look for what is it that people are missing, for what is it that we need, when we see that indeed there's more and more of, as Peter said, our relational being that's simply not working or missing in action or not even being tried. With the loss of confidence, Americans don't try so much to rebuild relational life. And postmodern conservative did that in as much as friendly conversation can do. First of all, to allow people to share all these observations, all these thoughts and these opinions, and to realize that just because you're a dissident in conservatism, just because you're not talking about taxes, regulations, and the occasional invasion, it doesn't mean that you're unserious. In fact, it's the people who repeat the happy talk on TV who are unserious. And I I thought of postmodern conservative as a kind of investigation. If we were to ask Americans, look at America, what's going on, but ignored what all the celebrities are saying, what would we find out then? Oh, he's got some very good articulations, you might say defenses of what kind of in the aughts were called the ex-urban Americans, kind of more middle-class people in the South. And he made real efforts to try to articulate the way those people saw the world and to defend them against unfair presentations by people. I mean, he liked David Brooks quite a bit. He respected his books, but he had some criticisms of some of the things David Brooks was doing. And he was very critical of this one French intellectual, what is it, Bernard Levy? I can never remember this guy's name, who kind of had this book where he travels around America, pretends to be like a new Tocqueville, just not up to snuff. 
but I, I like those more down-to-earth defenses of Americans who might be coming from a more, you know, lower class or lower middle class perspective, or maybe the upper middle class exurban perspective that doesn't have a lot of sophisticated taste. And so I was more the, I've got bohemian tastes and I'm interested in rock and I want to talk about, you know, philosophers and stuff. And Peter was more he could do that, but his perspective was more tuned in to ordinary Americans. And so in some ways, there's glimmers of the populism that informs Trumpism and also what's going on in Europe. Peter was one of the first people I know who saw it or aspects of it coming. Yeah, that's right. He had a lot of respect for ethical virtues and for practical life. Of course, yeah. you know, given the stratospheric removal from life, typical of television, of the internet. Peter talked a lot about screens, how they depersonalize so much of life, how they encourage you to believe in fantasies, but also, of course, sometimes the advantages of them. In, in education, he pointed out how cheap it is now, if you want to educate people, to start classical education, because your screens yeah. make it possible for you to access the ancient wisdom that modernity has long suppressed or derided. But mostly he was critical of screens because they separated people from reality and from each other. And so he was usually inclined to look to the things that people dismissed or despised and see the good in them. See that mm -hmm. a lot of poor people in a lot of poor or lower middle class or even middle class locales join there for the community and the fellowship. They do become in some way regulars and they know each other and it's all right. He was not just a Waffle House guy, he was also a Panera Bread guy, as you suggested. Right. So pleased to see it come to his little corner of Georgia. But I think he also saw a kind of connection between these things that uh, you would also see in Walker Percy. It's not just the poor people who are needy in America. Rich people are also very, very needy. Mm -hmm. uh, what the poor and even the homeless will find at McDonald's, the middle class will find at Starbucks. And in both cases, these people are desperate for human connection instead of organizing more and uh, being proud of knowing each other. They're kind of ashamed of themselves. But that's why these things are such successes. Indeed, American materialism always has a kind of spiritual need and a belief that things could be worked out in a specific way. Peter wasn't quite as inclined to this level of abstract theory, but he had the touch for it. He was effortlessly able to notice all these sorts of things in his life or indeed in pop culture. And I think one of the reasons he was so interested in it is because he knew that he would be able to judge what's real and what's a fantasy in pop culture. And if you do not have that kind of judgment, well, you know, the easiest thing to see about conservatives is that they're Philistines. They really would rather do their taxes than read a poem, much less try to interpret one. Whereas the American heart feeds to these things, TV shows and pop music, and that's where people go for the education in regard to love and friendship and hopes and dreams and desperation that is systematically denied to them in society. I think, you know, this is our path to your own work, Carl's Rock Songbook, and your views of the importance of rock and roll and rock music as the identity of the middle classes since the mid-century. Yeah, so Peter was in tune with what, I don't even like to use the phrase common man, but he was in tune with what he observed his fellow Georgians interested in, you know, country music and whatnot. And he, he would say interesting things about that. But he did have respect for his fellow eggheads, intellectuals who kind of would go off into Shakespeare or, you know, Flannery O'Connor. Well, he loved Flannery O'Connor, given the Southern connection. But if you know, people would go off into kind of 
more typically bohemian things. He respected that. He just it wasn't his main beat. He left that more to others. So the songbook was prompted really by a post of his where I think he was just impressed by the fact that Dylan was still putting out, you know, albums. And he said, so what, who are the greatest, longest lasting, you know, rock groups besides Dylan? And he mentioned Bruce Springsteen. And there was some discussion of that. And in the course of that discussion, you know, I grew up kind of a Generation X rock hipster. So very connected to the aftermath of the punk explosion and the alternative scenes. And I was also involved in these very underground scenes in Southern California that were very much revivalists very much into kind of old-time rock and roll, rockabilly, or garage music was one of the terms used. You know, in retrospect, those little scenes were right about a number of things. They were right that analog sound is better than digital sound. Most people have come around to our point of view on this by now. And the other thing that you saw by being involved in those little scenes was that there was a great deal of awareness, even by the late 60s, that you really had lost something in transition from rock and roll, good time 50s dance music, to rock. You know, this kind of intellectually serious thing. Jim Morrison just came on the stage and and said something incredible and it's going to shake your whole viewpoint. And so that's a lot of what I brought into the rock songbook. My kind of weird stance was, look, rock and roll and the old time blues and the old time country, that stuff is superior to rock music. (laughs) It really is. It's better rhythmically. It's better to dance to. You're going to just be a healthier person for listening to that stuff. And then I also, I could never fully feel this, but I guess intellectually, I always believed that classical music was superior also, or maybe the finest jazz. So rock music for me was the place of the middling person, the person who was a little bit aristocratic, a little bit democratic, couldn't really pretend to be an old time country guy or blues guy. They had dabbled with some university education. They wanted to throw some university ideas into a three minute or maybe now five minute pop song. And, you know, someone like Dylan made some important breakthroughs, particularly in songwriting lyrics to allow those kind of innovations to happen. And so that gives us the 60s rock explosion and then the further outgrowths out of that. So all of my songbook posts were always thinking about those bigger issues, but they're also just taking each song as it came. You know, what can we learn from the Kinks' Waterloo Sunset? Or what's the philosophy implicit in Bob Dylan's Blown with the Wind, even though it's kind of a folk song? So that's what my songbook did. And Peter was very supportive and was an interlocutor. But at a certain point, you know, when the talk got a little too hipsterish, he would back off and say, well, that's your expertise. I do want to mention one other influence on my songbook. There's a line of American critical thinking. It comes ultimately from Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray, both Black novelists and deep thinkers about the Afro-American experience. And it goes through a woman who's not gotten enough attention, Martha Bayless. She wrote an absolutely stellar book on kind of American pop music called Hole in Our Soul. And it's really the best case for saying the old Afro-American stuff, rhythm and blues, you might say rock and roll. Even if you look at it carefully, country, if you look at some of the influence coming through it, it really had some powerful things going on in it. And it did start to get worse as you proceeded into the 70s and 80s. People lost touch with some of the skills. And it happened in the 60s a bit, but it particularly happened in the 70s with punk that people brought in what Bayless called this kind of perverse modernist aesthetic. So kind of going back to something like Dada in the 20s. 
a lot of this stuff started out in the visual arts world. And so she really is powerful at showing how that really just made a lot of American music worse. It ruined a lot of the standards that certain Afro-American influence things had established. So that was an important book for me in developing my overall theory of a high version of American cultural life still connected to classical music, being explored in new directions with certain kinds of jazz, and then kind of this middling area of rock music, and then say the lower level of just dance floor pop music that at least it used to be much more superior musically, but it's still, it is what it is. You know, I go to an ice skating rink and I hear the latest pop songs and some of them are better to dance to than others. So there you have it. I was very grateful for that opportunity to develop my theories and to explore a number of songs. I think I did about 117 numbers. Some of them are pretty short. Others of them are kind of, you know, I got into kind of grand topics just thinking about a particular song. So that's Carl's Rock Songbook. And someday I suppose I'll make it into a book. It does feel like at the moment that rock music is sort of on the back burner of American culture and some of the avenues for, you might say, creative and bridge building conversation that I thought could be possible through something like the song, but they seem a little less possible today in the polarized America. 15 years ago, I was more confident about my ability to bring my fellow rock fans along with me into a more moderate understanding of American life than I am at the moment. So that's kind of my overall look at the rock song book. I see what you mean, that whatever seriousness there was left to rock music in the 90s has really evaporated and rock musicians have themselves gone not just into revival or rehearsal of previous styles, but also into a coping mode where they're just trying to keep small communities or small musical ways of expressing their American sorrows and hopes alive in increasingly niche settings. It is no longer America's music. It is no longer the way middle-class people identify themselves. And I don't think that is likely to change. But I think that this is really the time to write this book because it might be the last time that there is a memory and maybe even an inclination to do a reckoning about this matter. The rock music Mm -hmm. that America was in love with from the 50s through the at least 80s or even in a certain way in the 90s. Your songbook came just before the podcasting habits started and now everybody has a podcast and there are even good right. musical podcasts out there but they have the strengths and the weaknesses that american fans bring to music they're obsessive people who have 300 yeah. recordings of the grateful dead in concert and there are people who have yeah, all yeah, the yeah. bootlegs and unreleased yeah. things from radiohead's catalog really undignified It's also the popular temptation to say, well, here are the top five songs. Here's the best song on this album. This sort of desperate attempt to attract attention and justify in some way one's pleasures, but not a lot of reflection in the way in which you can bring to discussion and move effortlessly from the music to the lyrics to the times or the album or the influences or indeed broader ideas in politics and philosophy that's needed now for adults who are, to some extent, conscious of this influence on them. And I believe the main reason people are so aware is that they know it has passed. There's not going to be another rock star. There hasn't been one since I don't know when. Maybe Kurt Cobain killed himself and killed rock with him. 
And so it's, <laughs> your fault. Well, I'm not ascribing blame, but it happened that way. And right. so people remember this as somehow part of our past and therefore part of stuff that we were yearning for and believed in in some strange way that we never quite paid attention. Because here's another fact that you will easily verify. If you change the American education system and instead of taking SATs, you would have to say, what are your top 10 pop songs and mm-hmm. write down the lyrics and talk about them, everybody would fail. <laughs> Like that great scene in School of Rock, you know, where uh, Mr. Schneebly is trying to ask the kids what their influences are. He's so appalled. You know, that that movie's like 16 years old now. You know, I will say this, rock is still with us. It's this possible aesthetic form that you can use. And there's still, I mean, one of the things the songbook taught me is when I started the songbook, I was more critical. I was kind of like, I'm going to be shooting at rock music from the old rock and roll side on one hand and from classical on the other. and And I'm really down on rock. But as I worked on it, I just wound up having more sympathy for its better artists and became interested in a number of the newer groups, the millennial generation groups. And I feel bad for them. The good groups hardly ever get any publicity, but they're there. And now COVID with the lockdowns, it's just, I just know it's wiping them out. So there's just, there's going to be this big gap. It was already kind of dying down. It was going really underground. But I think, you know, not being able to have these typical concert events in your small bar is just going to be devastating for a lot of these small groups. But the form is there. And yes, a lot of the groups have been doing what I call recyclement. There's not really much new you can do with the three-minute, four-minute, five-minute pop song format. If you really want to do radical things, you've got to go out into discoveries that the classical and the jazz musicians have made. Yeah, people have been recycling things for a while now. And I think early on in the songbook, I just said, that's okay. That's all right. That's where we are. You kind of have to come to the realization, and this would be a radical thing to say in the 80s or 90s, but now everybody knows it, that rock is not moving us on ever new musical plateaus, right, of discovery and difference. That's what people really thought in the 80s and 90s, I can tell you, and it just proved not to be the case. And part of, I guess, being a postmodern conservative is to say, that's okay, make the best of the situation as you can. You still have creative impulses. It might be that rock is a better poetic avenue for you than writing traditional poetry, for example. Make your choices and best of luck to you. That's, in a way, the spirit I wound up with in the songbook. And I'm grateful you know, for you to say that it would be important for me to put it into a book and to allow people to think about it. The funny thing with rock, I think particularly for the boomers and the Xers, is it really did feel like something significant. It felt like a cause. And how you grapple with why it felt that way and why it didn't turn out that way, I think is useful and significant. Yeah, I happen to think that the transformations of rock music anteceded and foresaw much of the changes in American societies. Yeah. Uh, Partly for the obvious reason that this is where a lot of teenagers got their formation, and that matters far more than their parents will admit or society or intellectuals. Partly it's because the American press has so long been essentially celebrity worship. And on the other hand, when there were writers that knew what they were talking about, they were invariably partisans of that form of music, that they were simply unwilling to say anything uh, serious about its limitations or drawbacks or what they should have reservations about. The music simply excited such passions and hopes, as you're saying, that the degree of skepticism like you can bring to your essays was not any more of interest than, you know, reading the lyrics. 
or persuading the singers to sing intelligibly for all possible. <laughs> yeah, I think that conservative, I mean, something like what Alan Bloom drew from Plato and Aristotle's philosophical observations about music, or you might look at what Whit Stillman noticed about social dancing. I have an essay that's going to be coming out about that pretty soon. You need that kind of critical look at rock to then have a, a willingness to maybe sit, say, maybe I'm going to turn my back against rock. I'm not going to be that rock guy. I think you have to have that to really start to think about it critically. Maybe you don't have to, but it really helps. It helped me. And um, it doesn't mean that you're going to just become a, I only listen to classical music kind of person, but it shows you what we're up against as we move forward. You know, we have this pop culture we have these options, but we also have this side of us that wants to do more fine art stuff. You know, like with social dancing, that's something I think that could be revived at any time. We got in this terrible habit in, in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century of saying, you know, there's this sort of logic of history, one thing follows the next, and oh, that's dead. Social dance is dead. That's just wrong. You know, human nature is human nature, and we can return to a number of these things. I mean, people are playing Mozart quartets today. There's no particular reason why it's horrible that a group of young artists might be sort of imitating Jefferson Airplane 20 years from now, or more healthily, trying to get a social dance craze going so their peers will have something healthy to do and a good place to do courtship at. Yeah, in fact, uh, we have some reason to believe that if we think hard about these things and what they revealed about America and why they fell apart, we might find practical ideas because rock was a substitution for sociability and for relationality and mm. not just an engine of democracy. But it fell apart and it's presumably going to be necessary to deal with things otherwise. There are still going to be young Americans. Everybody's going to want to listen to music now and then. Yeah. And they will be therefore open to persuasion and gentle criticism from people who shared their loves. That was long neglected. It wasn't just that rock was in certain ways crazy, but the way it was treated in society was also crazy. Perhaps there's a way to do things more reasonably a second time around since the passions are not the same and people are just more aware of their needs, their longing yeah. for some kind of companionship with other people, for something that is beautiful, that is pleasant, and the various ways in which they can participate in it. Everybody at Postmodern Conservative has long been saying, you got to publish that book. Uh, every time we talk, <laughs> in fact, this comes yeah, up. Okay. So all the encouragement that we can provide or second opinions, you can count on us because this is a really wonderful thing. And distinguishing also, not everybody has this in their back pocket. Indeed, almost nobody does. Well, thank you, Titus. Well, Carl, I think this brings us neatly around to the end of our conversation about postmodern conservatism, about our Tocquevillian American studies and how they were guided by Peter, who was indeed first and foremost, and who nevertheless inspired us in all these different ways. We have uh, strangely different interests, but somehow managed to harmonize them fairly well and to learn from each other. I think that's maybe the most valuable part of postmodern conservative to share elective affinities and to show that there's far more of reasoning and persuasion and conversation than simply a mute pleasure that maybe is overpowering to you alone or in a great collective. It's things you can share with your friends and grow into those friendships over the years. That's another thing I'm so grateful to Peter for and of course to you since you introduced me to postmodern conservative. Mm -hmm. So thanks for joining me and let's do this again sometime. Mm -hmm.
Okay, Titus, look forward to seeing you next time. All the best, Carl. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.